Hey everyone, happy Giving Tuesday. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I am absolutely glad that you have joined us, and I am hopeful that you are supporting WDET on this Giving Tuesday. All morning we have been talking about the need to protect independent journalism and the wonderful musical shows that we have here on WDET. So I hope you are all doing your part. I want to start today by talking about the demise of local news organizations. Across the country, it feels like this is something that is happening in slow motion. Once or twice every year, we hear more about layoffs, about buyouts, and or cuts at our local newspapers. Last year, the University of North Carolina released a comprehensive study that showed 1,300 U.S. communities now have no news coverage. They have lost news coverage, far more than previously known. The same question is asked over and over. How can journalism survive in this era of online consumption and the demand for free news? A lot of outlets are putting up paywalls, requiring audience members to subscribe to get content, but some places are looking at a different business model. They're looking at becoming nonprofits. That's the road that newspapers in Philadelphia recently went down, and now the Salt Lake Tribune in Utah is following suit. Here to talk about why the Tribune has made that decision and what the future of nonprofit news looks like is the person who is tasked with steering the Utah's the Utah Papers transition. I want to welcome Fraser Nelson, who is Vice President of Business Innovation at the Salt Lake Tribune to Detroit Today. Fraser, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, I'm glad to be with you, and I certainly hope everybody does make a donation on Giving Tuesday. That's a great opportunity to be a part of the the match program. That's absolutely right. Um, let's start with you talking about the decision that was made there in Salt Lake City to make the newspaper a nonprofit and why the Tribune decided to follow this path. Sure. Well, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune is a statewide newspaper in Utah. We cover um, the entire state, and we cover it from an independent perspective. You know, Utah has a somewhat unique cultural uh, environment. We're a a big state with a lot of um, federal lands and state-owned lands, as well as a dominant uh, religion that plays a, a kind of an outsized role in politics and culture in our state. And the Tribune has been around for almost 150 years, providing an independent perspective and a statewide perspective on, on issues of local and national importance, like land, land use. And the paper, like a lot of papers that you cited, in, in the, like a lot of papers in the study you cited, has gone through a series of ownership from, you know, an individual and family ownership through a hedge fund. And then finally, a Paul Huntsman, who's a gentleman who lives here in Utah, purchased the paper three years ago in order to bring it back to local ownership and to sustain the paper. He found, though, he's a businessman, and he found pretty quickly that the business model for local newspapers of advertising revenue, classifieds, um, and print subscriptions just wasn't cutting it and wasn't going to cut it. And that's why we've seen uh, 2,000 papers close in the last 15 years across the country. Mm-hmm. So he decided to take the bold move to become the first uh, legacy paper to petition the Internal Revenue Service to become a not-for-profit. We really felt that adding philanthropy as the third leg in the stool of how we could 
uh, have revenue to sustain the paper was the right way to go. And we were very gratified to receive news from the IRS on November 4th that, in fact, we have been approved. And this really opens the door for other newspapers like us to move forward with this model as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about the changes that you think this might mean for the content of the Salt Lake Tribune. So when we think of nonprofits, for instance, and, and organizations that have nonprofit status, we often think of the neutrality, I guess, that that is uh, expected of them to stay out of of politics, to stay out of campaigning or uh, the idea of advocating for one thing over another. And of course, newspapers historically have always included the idea of opinion, the idea of an opinion page, the editorial page, where not only do they publish their own opinions, but they also publish others. I, I wonder how that comports with this idea of being a nonprofit. I think our community engagement will definitely deepen. Our editorial page and opinion pages will be as strong as ever. The one thing that we will not be able to do, uh, and a lot, a lot of newspapers already don't do this, is endorse candidates. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. direct electioneering. And nonprofits are not allowed to do that. Right. We are a public charity, so we are the same as as the Red Cross. I mean, just figure any nonprofit that you think of, Boys and Girls Clubs, YWCA. We were given the same um, status under the 501c3 as those organizations. And so we are prohibited from endorsing candidates, but that in no way prohibits our ability to take strong opinions about issues facing the community. You know, I heard when I was listening in about the water crisis, et cetera, in your your community, Mm -hmm. we would certainly in Salt Lake take a strong position and bring in people um, of different opinions to share their thoughts about that crisis and others that would that face our state. Um, so opinion and, uh, you know, strong editorials, absolutely. A direct endorsement of candidates, vote this way, no. But that doesn't that. mean that we can't provide a lot of information to help people decide how to vote. Right. Uh, I also wonder if you can talk about the, the relief I guess, that this will bring to the Salt Lake Tribune and give us a sense of the strain that the paper maybe has been been under for the last few years. Uh, does this push the paper into the realm of not having to worry about finances? Is it that big of a decision? <laughs> no, I, no. I'm sure the person in the, your CFO is laughing right now at the thought that a nonprofit <laughs> right? never worries about money. Nonprofits worry about money all the time. Maybe and, more than and, other and, folks, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe more than others. And, and I think a nonprofit news organization is probably among the worriest. <laughs> That's the word. No, this, this in no way... Uh, is a, a golden ticket to, you know, financial freedom. That's simply not the case. What it does allow us to do is turn to the community, much as you are today, and ask that community for a new kind of support mm-hmm. and to deepen their commitment. It also allows us to receive grants, um, to receive bequests, larger foundation funding, et cetera, that, right, that hasn't been available to us prior. You know, we're, there are models in other communities, like you mentioned Philadelphia. The the Philadelphia newspaper is a benefit corporation. Right. It is not a not-for-profit, but it's owned by a not-for-profit. 
in our community right here in Salt Lake, we have a newspaper called the Deseret News, Mm -hmm. which is owned by a not-for-profit, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What's different about what we're doing is it's a little more in line with with what you do, which is we are a not-for-profit organization. We can charge for some of our services. We're going to charge for the the newspaper. Um, We will charge for people who want to advertise. We'll also have corporate underwriting. We'll pay tax on uh, the ads that are not related to our mission, but we will not pay tax on the income that we receive from the print subscriptions or from the digital subscriptions. And one way to think about it is this. You know, you don't storm the symphony or a play and expect to get a seat. Mm-hmm. You pay for that, mm-hmm. for that content. In the same way, people pay for the content of the Salt Lake Tribune and so we will ask them to continue to pay for that content and make a gift in addition, as well as going after major gifts and, and sponsorships and other things. Yeah. So so going back to my previous question and, and sort of rephrasing, I guess, a little bit, uh, one of the things I was wondering about was the removal of that profit motive. In other words, that the idea that you have to make a certain amount of money to please ownership, whether that ownership is private or uh, the stock market, you know, the, the publicly held uh, uh, newspapers around the country. I, I'm wondering what kind of boost that gives to a paper like the Salt Lake Tribune. Well, we'll have to, I think there's a myth that nonprofits can't make a profit. They should all make profit because that's how they stay in business. Right. We, the pressure that we'll be receiving to turn a profit or to be sustainable, will be coming from the board of directors of the paper, as well as the readers. They want a strong newspaper. They want a strong, independent voice in Utah. They deserve it. We need to provide that. We'll be asking them to help us provide it by providing donations and support. Uh, but we would anticipate that the, the pressure, if that's the right word, the mm-hmm. expectation is that we continue a legacy of excellent independent journalism, Mm -hmm. watchdog journalism. And that's so critical for all of our local communities. Who else is looking at the legislature, at the city councils, um, at the way tax dollars are used, but local independent journalism, not national journalists, local journalists. Mm -hmm. And so if anything, I, I anticipate that the expectations for excellence, and for excellence we need money, will only increase. Hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Fraser Nelson. She is the Vice President of Business Innovation at the Salt Lake Tribune, a newspaper which recently decided to become a nonprofit news organization. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. We're talking today about nonprofit news here on Giving Tuesday, the time when we are asking you here at WDET to help support our nonprofit operation here uh, with a donation. Uh, Tell us, other than WDET, where do you get your news these days? Are you paying for subscriptions to any newspapers or for other kinds of online journalism? Why or why not? And do you think more news organizations should go nonprofit? Do you feel like that is a way to preserve some of the news organizations that we have seen really struggle or in some extreme cases 
actually go away in recent years. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and uh, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, before we get to callers or comments, Frazier, I want to I want to get you to talk some about um, about the mission of the Salt Lake Tribune and whether you think that will be altered by this move to nonprofit. Uh, this idea that that perhaps you become more of a community resource or more focused on the idea of community because. Uh, again, you move into this this different space. Well, I really enjoyed um, hearing about the community meetings you all were holding around water quality yeah, our in book the Detroit club. and Flint sure. areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things are very much in line with the nonprofit mission. Uh, the The Tribune, like most newspapers, you know, was very successful for for decades, and though it has certainly has a history of holding uh, community forums. I think becoming a nonprofit really allows us to do some of the creative community engagement work like you're doing at WDET, mm-hmm. uh, book clubs, things like that. I think, you know, we've always held debates. We've been um, part of the, the effort to have, you know, candidate debates. I think there's ways for us to expand that kind of uh, community learning, group community learning. We also need to do a real good job, as all nonprofits do, of understanding our our donor base, understanding our customers. So we'll be holding events to reach out, particularly in rural communities. You know, Utah has a lot of rural, very rural, isolated areas. Going to those communities and, and touching base with our readers and supporters and learning about more about what their needs are. You know, years ago, we had 130 reporters spread across the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're down to, you know, a couple handfuls. Wow. And like many papers across the United States, we've had to cut back our coverage of, of local governments um, in smaller towns and jurisdictions. What creative ways can we um, come up with to expand that kind of coverage that maybe uh, we'll never, I would imagine, we'll never have sort of a, a a reporter in every county in Utah, mm-hmm. again, but we might be able to find ways um, with our nonprofit status to expand that kind of community engagement and reporting work. Yeah, uh, I also wonder what your staff is saying and how they're reacting to something like this. Uh, I spent most of my adult life working in newspaper newsrooms and have watched as the anxiety grows over uh, declining profits uh, over layoffs and buyouts that, that seemed never to end. I, I wonder if this maybe brings a sense of relief to the people who are who are working there at the Tribune. Well, uh, I guess I don't have to tell you that journalists are skeptics. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no. I, you know, I'm, I'm not from a, a newspaper background, so I thought everyone was you know, throwing rose petals at my feet. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> they have a lot of hard questions, and their number one question, uh, and I think it's the number one question of our readers, too, is how would this, could this impact our impartiality? How would this impact our ethics? You know, if we get a, a donation from uh, a major power, you know, source mm-hmm. in Utah, 
will we be less inclined to take that organization, that person, that business to task? Mm. That was their big concern. You know, I think there's obviously we're not going to receive a grant from uh, the foundation of the woman that runs the Utah Jazz and then say, oh, the Jazz are fantastic and they won every game. I mean, that <laughs> that would be obvious. But there are subtle ways that influence can um, enter a person's determination about what to cover. So we're placing a very thick, tall, impenetrable wall between development or fundraising and editorial content. Hmm. And um, I think that was their number one concern, was to make sure that, that, that they were free to do the job that they are trained to do. And the answer is absolutely. There's no doubt that sometimes donors uh, may be angry with us, and that's going to be okay. If they pull their funding, if they uh, decide not to donate, that's, that's fine. What, what we're known for is independent, excellent journalism. And the minute we lose that public trust, um, you know, if we ever were, we have to win that public trust every day, right? Mm-hmm. So we cannot in any way compromise that. Other than the concern about um, and the and the wanting to make sure that that independent voice remains, uh, I think that they're nervous, like we all are, to see how much people really love us. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hear it a little bit in the voices of of public radio every time it's a pledge drive. It's like, do you still love us? Do you still need us? <laughs> and since we're the first newspaper in the country to try this, um, I think a lot of people are nervous. You know, will will people step up and support a local legacy newspaper, which have been known um, to be, you know, profitable for many, many generations? Right. So one thing we have to do, and and a recent Gallup poll conducted with the Knight Foundation really underscored this, is we have to be we have to be transparent about the fact that we're in financial trouble. We're not doing this for fun, you know. We're not doing this because we didn't have anything else to do. We're doing this because we need public support in order to survive, mm-hmm. and we need people to understand that our financial situation is such that we are turning to them as another source, but a critical source of revenue in order to provide what we think uh, is an extremely important public service. One that, you know, is, is critical to our democracy, critical to our functioning as a community. So, um, yeah, I think we're all on a little bit of pins and needles uh, to see how this works, but yeah. response so far has been very, very positive. Yeah, I was going to ask if if you've got a sense so far of how the community is responding to this. Are they stepping up and saying, yeah, we'll support local news? Yes, they are. And uh, we're actually kicking off our first real fundraising campaign um, after Giving Tuesday. We knew that Giving Tuesday is super noisy, and we thought, well, we we, we, did, we wanted to let, you know, seasoned nonprofits do their thing. Um, so we will be kicking off our first, you know, kind of grassroots donation uh, process later this week, and uh, it'll run through the month of December. So it'll be very enlightening to see how our messaging is playing, mm-hmm. how, um, you know, what the response is. We've also set up... A, another organization called the Utah Journalism Foundation. And this is uh, meant to serve as an endowment, not only for the Salt Lake Tribune, but for other independent news organizations in the state, because we're all in the same boat. 
Um, and so that foundation is raising $60 million in the next couple years. Uh, and then the earnings from that endowment will go to help support uh, the Tribune and other journalistic enterprises and perhaps scholarships and, and some of this community outreach work that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, uh, Fraser Nelson, Vice President of Business Innovation at the Salt Lake Tribune. It was really great to hear about what you are up to out there uh, in Utah. And, of course, we wish you all the best with uh, this new business model and the connection with your community. Thank you, and I, I certainly encourage everyone listening to support their local journalism, especially the station you're listening to right now. Yes, absolutely. It is Giving Tuesday after all. All right, Fraser, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Up next, we're going to take a look at how the news is impacting us these days and sometimes making us feel downright sick. Are you stressed out by the things that you see in the news? Also, don't forget, if you miss any of today's conversation, you can download the Detroit Today podcast on iTunes. And remember, it is Giving Tuesday, your chance to show your support for independent journalism here at WDET. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Whether it's a refugee crisis, a school shooting, the latest climate report, partisan divisions in Washington, police brutality, a natural disaster, or something else, it's safe to say that if you follow the news, you have likely felt mentally, physically, or emotionally sickened by all of it at some point. Is the news stressing you out? Sure, there are advantages to living in this age of globalized and instant communication, but the burnout from the 24-7 nonstop news cycle is real, and much of the frustration circles right now around the current dysfunction and fighting in Washington. Two people with very different perspectives who both think a lot about the damaging effects of our rapid-fire media landscape join me now to talk about this. And as always, we want to hear from you. Is the news stressing you out these days, making you feel literally sick or causing you to lose sleep? What are the stories that really get under your skin and why? And are the topics that bother you most the ones that could affect you the most? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Call us and tell us what your relationship is with the outlets that provide you with information these days. Do you feel almost as if it's an intrusion each day to keep up with the news, as bad as it is, as acrimonious as it often is? The two people that we've got to help lead this conversation are really, really great, and I am really looking forward to talking with both of them. Kevin Smith is the Olson Chair and Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Kevin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Also with us is Dr. Shannon Chavez-Corral. She is the Chief Academic Program Director at the Michigan School of Professional Psychology. Dr. Chavez, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, I'm going to start with you. You were one of the leaders in gathering and making sense of this new research that came out of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which looked at the effects of participating in and tuning into America's political discourse. Talk about some of your key findings. Okay, so the study that we did, um, what we did is, is we basically asked um, a, a fairly large representative sample of Americans how they thought politics was affecting them. And the results that we got were kind of eye-opening, or at least eye-opening to us. So um, according to our results, 40% of Americans say that politics is stressing them out. A quarter of Americans say that they get depressed when their favorite candidate loses. A quarter of Americans say they spend more time thinking about politics than they would like. Um, more than one in ten say that politics has adversely affected their physical health. Uh, one in five say that it's damaged a friendship. One in 20 say they've even um, had thoughts of suicide because of politics. So, you know, we all knew that politics was is kind of like a a difficult and polarized landscape right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. But at least if you believe the results of our survey, it indicates that um, politics is taking a pretty significant toll on the emotional, psychological, social, and maybe even physical health of Americans. And, and talk about whether that's something that's different today. And if it is, is it because media are different in the way that we handle these things, in the way that we are sort of omnipresent in a way that we haven't been before? Or is it that politics have changed and become more acrimonious and sort of zero-sum? And so that is the driver? Or is it maybe a combination of both of those things? Yeah, those are all really good questions. Um, unfortunately, the data that we have, which was sort of like a snapshot taking at one point in time, can't really answer those questions. But, I mean, everything that you said sounds like a reasonable hypothesis to me, Stephen. I mean, clearly politics is more divisive and polarized than it's been even in the recent past. And certainly with the rise of um, online and social media, that, uh, I mean, at a minimum, we can say that hasn't done anything to calm those divisions down. So those are all reasonable hypotheses. You know, the difficulty in answering the sort of questions that you're asking is that, well, there are other surveys out there historically. You know, the American Psychological Association has done one of these that have asked single questions here and there about whether politics is, is stressing you out. As far as we are aware, um, you know, the study that we did is the only one that really sort of like takes a comprehensive inventory of the negative effects of politics on people's social and psychological lives. So, I mean, if I had to speculate and say, yes, this is probably worse than it was in the past, but we really haven't got any data to to, to, to verify that. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Chavez, uh, the Trump administration takes up a lot of the news coverage that we see mm -hmm. every day, but it's more than just about this administration and what the president said or what policies they might be pursuing. It gets to much deeper issues like racism and sexism and classism. Mm -hmm. uh, just a few examples of the things I think you can find at the center of these headlines. Talk about what you've noticed as far as the effects of these things coming up so frequently in the news cycle. Sure. Um, I, I think it's 
clear. Like when we turn on the news, we see um, microaggressions perpetuated through various media outlets. Um, but but I think the way that uh, news is delivered makes a huge difference in terms of how people receive it. Mm-hmm. And there are different bodies of research in psychology that help us make sense of of, or consider uh, the toll that news and, and um, maybe microaggressive um, uh, statements are having on our health. Some of that, some of those bodies of literature include, you know, issues of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'll start there. So in terms of issues of attention, you know, we're bombarded with email, um, uh, advertising, Twitter feeds, news blasts, so forth, it, in all directions. There's a competition for our attention, not only grabbing our attention, but sustaining our attention. And so, um, and we know that the brain is wired to pay attention to threats. That's just a natural, um, a, it's a survival instinct, and it's called negativity bias. So we we tend to naturally, um, our attention is um, grabbed by um, maybe the threats that might resonate with us more, mm-hmm. right? And um, and and so the news there seems to be uh, more negative news, and it's shocking to grab our attention. So that's kind of an intentional piece. Um, but also from psychology, we know that the way we consume news can have an impact on how it affects us. So um, not only is this news uh, maybe news more shocking and negative and negative, but the, the multiple facets of our senses that are utilized in consuming the news affects how we're receiving it. So if it's a single facet, like you're reading it, um, you know, uh, or if you are um, listening to the radio, that's a single uh, facet of our senses mm-hmm. versus multiple senses, like when we're seeing and hearing things on television. Um, so, so the platform in which we consume, when more of our senses are triggered, then the um, then our risks for psychological distress are heightened. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you both a question that that's inspired by a comment that we've got on Facebook. Dave on Facebook says, "I've had to put serious limits on the amount of news <laughs> I ingest every day. It was definitely impacting my health." I, you know, whenever I hear about things like this, I, I always wonder what's the solution. So, and, and I had this conversation this weekend with with relatives who were in town for the holiday. Uh, how much should we withdraw from the the entire sphere of news sort of uh, uh, environment? I mean, if if you think about how often. Uh, you can watch the news and hear exactly what's happening at at any given moment. Uh, after a few days away from cable news, I had some relatives who said, "Oh, maybe we should take a look at what's going on." But then there was, of course, this discussion about how distressing all of the news always is. So I guess the question is, what is it that we're supposed to be doing? Should we be limiting our exposure to these stories and these issues? Or should we be drinking it in in a different way, I guess, mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Or, or, or paying attention in a way that doesn't affect us in the same way? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Chavez Corel, I'll start with you. Great. Thank you. I love this question. And I think for me, it pairs into two, two different re- um, important responses. One is, I think as citizens, we have a social responsibility to tune in and know what's going on in our community. It's important that we are bearing witness to issues. Um, And with that said, self-care is also critically important. I I don't think you can be an engaged citizen if you don't know the issues. And so um, 
But again, paired with that is a need for self-care, like limiting the amount of news. Again, considering the facets in which we consume news. If it's something's highly personal, we might consider a single facet of, of uh, senses engaged, right? Like reading or listening to the radio when things are very stimulating for us. Um, also engaging in uh, having conversation with others about the news and, and balancing. When I talked about that negativity bias, you know, maybe just being mindful of we need to pair that with positive yeah. news as well. Like what's going on in our communities that are that are that's working, that's healthy, that's resilient, that's functioning. We need to be in touch with that as well. And so I think when we're aware of the negativity bias, the the domains of senses stimulated and our social responsibility, that can help us with self-care and keeping things in balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Smith, uh, what what advice do you have for people who are feeling as though they're suffering from the exposure that they have to the news? Well, to start with, I think I'd um, back up everything Dr. Travis Correll just uh, said. Um, you know, the, the, the issue here, though, is there's sort of like an underlying tension is in the sense that, you know, as part of democracy, you want citizens to be engaged and aware of what's going on in their government and in the political arena. But how do you do that in a way that doesn't sort of like, you know, have a, have a, have a negative uh, uh, feedback loop? Um, I'm not sure that I've got uh, any sort of like magical answer to that. The kind of prophylactic effects that we found in our study, you know, the, the, the sorts of things that led to people having less of a negative effect on their social and psychological health tended to be more personality-based rather than uh, action-based. Mm. So... You know, people who were more emotionally stable and were more agreeable, for example, tended to um, report less of these negative effects. But it's, I mean, you can't really talk, tell someone, yeah, be more emotionally stable, be more uh, agreeable, because that's a, that's, that's a trait, not a state. You know, the, the, the bottom line to your question, Stephen, is, is I don't really know. This is something that we're paying attention to, and we've got plans in the works to try and see if we can figure out some of this stuff a little bit more specifically around what happens with the 2020 elections. Um, but, but, but right now I haven't got the one, two, three steps that um, can sort of like mitigate these kind of effects, at least on a broad, broad mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I also want to give you a chance, Kevin, to talk about the fact that you believe this is a public health crisis. Talk about how the political news has sort of risen to that level in your in your judgment yeah well that's interesting i mean i'm not sort of like out here claiming this is a this is a public health crisis this is something that came up in conversation with a number of people including some of your colleagues in the media Mm -hmm. and where i pointed out is if you replaced the word politics in our study with something like vaping was the example that i gave and it was you know, we took our data at face value and said vaping is causing these kind of problems. What would the response to that be? And the general answer I got to that probe was, well, that would be a pretty significant public health problem. And this is something that has, you know, um, you know, we've been giving a good deal of thought to this. Um, you know, as someone who spent a big part of his adult life teaching young Americans or young citizens that they need to be engaged and that they need to be aware. Um, 
you know, have, have, have people like us really been pushing certain types of people into activities that have, you know, negative mental health costs? And, and the short answer, we just don't really know. I think we've got a lot to figure out here. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Chavez Corral, uh, you have also talked about uh, the sort of poverty-related stress that the news uh, is is causing in racial and ethnic identity development. Uh, how have you noticed the the news influencing these areas in people's lives? Yeah. Um, I, I love this question. Thank you. Um, so, in terms of you know any sort of facet of identity, the type of stress that the news might um, trigger for us. Earlier I mentioned microaggressions when we feel that a facet of our identity is being negatively targeted. Um, you know, I think the media um, can be a platform for um, uh, for perpetuating that information. Um, but I also think that um, separate from the media, racism is a problem. And it's it's making all of us sick, whether we're aware of it or not. And so when um, when, you know, people I think you, earlier you mentioned um, uh, the number of microaggressions um, we hear Donald Trump speak on a weekly basis. Um, I think that is a marker of an illness that's in society. And it's just risen to a point where I think. Um, the media allows the raising of this collective consciousness. Um, just like I think historically that's been the case. I, I think about in, the, in 1955 when Emmett Till's mother had an open casket funeral. Mm -hmm. And when that picture went across newspapers around the country, there was this collective consciousness raising that people could not deny that racism was alive and well and and the pain and the consequences of what that looked like. And that was um, an encounter experience, a consciousness-raising experience for people of all races. Mm -hmm. And we know that that was a big tipping point leading into the civil rights movement. So I think there, you know, with the ills of media can also be this, um, this unveiling. Uh, and, and, and I think that's the part that's so difficult. You know, I once wrote a column about the similarity, I guess, between what Emmett Till's mother did to try to show the nation what was happening and what we're seeing now on the little screens that we all carry in our yeah. pockets. If you think of the footage of police officers brutalizing or killing people of color, sometimes for no reason at all and, and other times for very trivial reasons, it's it's like the Till photo that ran on on the front of newspapers. Absolutely, absolutely. I, and I think those are very um, um, similar. Um, and, and, and I think the the impact it's having on communities, we see that as well being very similar. But I think at risk here is when we become complacent and check out. So again, it's keeping things in balance. How do we tune into the news in ways where we're informed? And I think considering the type of news we tune into is really important um, and, and where that news is coming from. But but tuning in and then engaging in our communities. I think that's a way to keep it in balance and healthy. Yeah. I want to take a quick phone call here. Uh, Terry in Detroit, go ahead with your question. Good morning. It's kind of a question and a statement. I work in a public-facing position um, in an organization that takes phone calls from the community. These are particularly vulnerable people that need government assistance or assistance from nonprofits or other organizations. And since the 2016 election, there's been a noticeable increase in the stress level and the emotional um, 
uh, sort of chaos in the calls that we receive. I mean, we get people calling in, crying on the phone. They listen to news stories. They listen to threats about health care benefits and other things that have happened over the course of the last three years, and it affects them on a very personal level. Hmm. And so my question is, is how do we kind of get back to um, – I mean, the news is part of it. Oftentimes, the phone, they'll hear something is going on on the news, and, and the, the phone calls just increase. People are internalizing what we hear there. Mm. And um, clearly, some of the news is out of balance, but it seems that people have forgotten how to keep it in balance. Right. If right. that makes sense. Uh, Terry, I really appreciate the call and, and that perspective. Uh, Kevin Smith, we are uh, running out of time. We've got a, a couple minutes left, but I want to give you a chance to react to what she's saying. It seems to reinforce what you are hearing in the study that you uh, conducted about the way people are reacting. But that day, 2016, I think is critical here. Yeah, it was certainly what some of the comments that Terry made um you know, fit with, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we found in our study, um, you know, in, in, in terms of dealing with this sort of like 27, you know, full saturation media environment, um, that that's certainly exacerbating uh, the sort of problems that we're, we're discussing here today. Um, you know, other than sort of like saying, you know, as Dr. Travis Carell said, in, engaging consciously and thinking about it rather than just mindlessly mm-hmm. pulling through your Twitter feed every mm-hmm. uh, every 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the best way. That's the best way to approach this is just to try to get some perspective on uh, what's happening. And part and parcel of that is controlling your um, information and media consumption habits, which I fully recognize is easy, easier said than done. <laughs> right, especially when it's on your phone and in your pocket. Um, right. <laughs> okay, Kevin Smith, Olson Chair and Professor of Political Science at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and Dr. Shannon chavez Correll, Chief Academic Program Director at the Michigan School of Professional Psychology. It was really great to have both of you here for this conversation. We'll have to have you back to talk more about the ways that social media in particular, I think, is changing the way that we react to news. But I was really glad glad to have you both here. Great. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Remember, it is Giving Tuesday. Show your support for independent journalism and wonderful music here on WDET. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.